0: How often in a week do you think about God? How often in a day do you think about God? How often do those thoughts about God express themselves in praise to Him? It's not uncommon that when we go through hardships in life, We tend to move our focus from looking up and praising our great God to getting our eyes stuck looking down at the troubles we are facing. And I I just can't help but wonder if, or wonder how we might handle those difficulties differently if we looked up to God more, if we devoted ourselves to praise of Him in the midst of the storm more. We're going to continue our series this morning through the Psalms that we began last week. And last week we looked at Psalm 19 that reminded us or taught us of the revelation of God that's displayed generally in his creation, uh, where his divine nature and his eternal power are clearly seen but then even more specifically in his revelation of his word, where we read about who he is. We read about the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and that it is this powerful word that transforms the soul, transforms the life. And it leads us, these revelations about from God lead us to respond in a certain way to him. Now, today we're going to look at Psalm 99. And this psalm will remind us of the holiness of God that beckons us to come and worship the holiness of God that beckons us, come worship him. We are made, we are created, and we are saved to glorify God through worship. You are made to worship God, you are saved to worship God. And this psalm draws our attention to him. So let's read Psalm 99 together. Beginning in verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. The king in his might loves justice, you have established equity, you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy Is he? Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, For the Lord our God is holy. Psalm 99 falls into a category of Psalms we would say are an enthronement psalm or a celebration of the Lord's kingship. They are giving praise to God as king. Here in this psalm, though, within that category of celebrating the divine king, the psalmist narrows down onto an overarching motivation for our worship, something he wants to draw to our attention about God, and that is the holiness of God. You could summarize the point of the psalm as saying, the holiness of God demands our worship. The holiness of God demands our worship. So the primary motive of our worship is the holiness of God. And we see in Psalm 99 that his holiness it flows out in three aspects of his kingship. It's demonstrated in three aspects of his kingship. We could almost say these are the three reasons we worship our holy God, three reasons to worship our king. And it, we can divide the psalm up in that way. The first reason we'll see in verses 1 through 3 is he is the sovereign king. The sovereign king. The second reason is in verses 4 through 5, which is he is the just king. And the last reason in verses 6 through 9 is he is the gracious king. And each of these three sections ends with a call for us to praise God, to worship our holy God. So let's look at the first one. First reason to worship our holy God is he is the sovereign king in verses 1 through 3 says, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. We begin there by seeing the Lord reigns. That's the tagline that helps us know that this is part of the celebration of God's kingship. The Lord reigns, the Lord is the king. Yahweh is king, and he rules over all from heaven. No one can trump his reign. No one can remove his reign. No one can overpower his reign. No one is wiser than this king who reigns. He is the one in control. In fact, his rulership, his exaltation, his reigning sovereignty was to cause, or to cause the people to respond with trembling. This word tremble has the idea of shaking or trembling with emotion from terror. Now this isn't a terror as in watching like a horror movie kind of terror. This is a terror or a fear when one ponders or realizes that this king who reigns is all-powerful all-knowing. He is absolutely authoritative. His word is what goes. He determines how things ought to be, and everything submits to him. We see this attitude or this trembling expressed in the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, where right after Israel had was fleeing from the Egyptian army, and they passed through the Red Sea, which if you haven't read that story in a while, please go back and read it. It is fascinating. God parts the sea, and it is his power is so amazing that even the ground they walk on through the sea is dry. And he delivers his people in a mighty way by sending them through the split Red Sea, but Pharaoh and his army uh, are pursuing him, and they make it through... Israel makes it through, but God sends the waves crashing back upon Pharaoh, showing there is no other nation, there is no other God as mighty as Yahweh, and he will do as he pleases. He will save his people as it pleases him. He will deliver them. He will protect them. Pharaoh couldn't stop it. The nations can't stop it. In fact, this act of God's power... Was to, cause all, was to cause all the nations to tremble. Exodus fifteen fourteen. Moses writes, The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. The person who truly ponders the majestic holiness and the sovereign power of God Almighty will recognize the perilous position that we are in as sinners. He is mighty, powerful, all-powerful, ruling everything. Who are we? We're tiny little sinners in the vastness of the universe and the vastness compared to His power. And to think we'll answer to Him. Yes, it should cause a fear of the Lord, and he goes on to describe this reign of God when he says he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake, not only the people's tremble, but they'll let the earth itself quake. He reigns, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. This is a reference in the Old Testament to the Ark of the Covenant. You might remember the Ark of the Covenant. It was part of the tabernacle and temple worship It was a box that God prescribed Israel to make that uh, was covered in gold. And within it held the two tablets of the commandments that the Lord had given. And on top of this gold-covered box was a lid, a cover called the mercy seat. It was on this mercy seat that the priest would bring an atonement once a year, sprinkle blood upon it to cover, to pay for the sins of Israel. But on top of this lid were two sculpted cherubim, angelic beings. And they faced each other, and their wings went out over it, touching each other at the tip. And it was said, or it wasn't just said, it is there that God made his presence known here among the people. So when Israel thought of the ark, they thought of the presence of God because that's where he dwelt among his people. In fact, Moses himself would meet with the Lord there for a time being. In Exodus 25:22 it says, "God says, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony." So you had this ark with two cherubim and God was seen as enthroned, sitting reigning from on top of there. But this ark wasn't just out for everyone to see, it was hidden, it was behind a curtain. You might remember that that from uh, your Bible history, that there was a curtain within the inner part of the tabernacle and later the temple, there was this structure, this building, you would walk into it, the priest would walk into it, and the front half would be called the holy place where you had various pieces of furniture, such as the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the lampstand. But behind that was a curtain from ceiling to floor. And behind the curtain was where the ark sat, where God was seated enthroned on the cherubim. And only the high priest, once a year, was allowed to go past the curtain to offer the blood sacrifice for atonement. One was not able to just approach God haphazardly, like it's no big deal just hanging out with a buddy. If God was so holy that as sinners are to come into his presence, there must be an atonement. God reigns over all the universe, from the heavens, and as the psalmist writes, he sat over the ark and not only is mankind to recognize and respond with holy fear before the sovereign lord we see all creation is to recognize and respond to the rule of god god's rule impacts everything in fact verse two tells us that no one reigns higher than god no one is able to escape his rule It says that he is great in Zion, referring to where the temple was located. We know this as Jerusalem. And he had established Israel as his people, his special people he'd made covenant with, and they were to be a testimony of his greatness to the world. That was Old Testament evangelism. Come and see how amazing Yahweh is. We get a glimpse of that at the height of Solomon's reign when the queen of Sheba comes to inquire of the king and his wisdom. But it didn't stay that way. You know, Israel eventually rebelled and God brought discipline to them, punishment to them for their rebellion. But he was still the king. In fact, he's not just great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. As the Creator God, and as the sovereign king, God is above everyone. Not just the people of Israel. who were It wasn't only them that were really supposed to submit to his rule. It's all the nations are held accountable to him. And it, it, it doesn't matter whether they recognize him as king or not. It doesn't change the truth that God is king. And everyone will submit to him. Everyone will be accountable to him. And so the psalmist tells us that should lead us to a response. And the response of this first section is verse 3 where he says, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. This is the response of man to the Holy One who rules over all. We're to praise God who's holy. That's the main application right here. Praise him. Declare how holy great he is and who he is and declare both in your mind and in with your mouth that he is the sovereign king who works his justice and his power over all creation he is great there's none like him he's great and that he is the most important he is the most important one god stands out he doesn't just blend in with the crowd. He is unique and important. None are better than him. No one is more powerful than him. And no one rules over him. He does not need to seek the counsel of men or anyone else to determine the right way in which things are to be done. But he's just, his name is not just great. It is awesome. It is awesome. We use that word so much. It loses its punch. We use it as if everything is awesome. But to be awesome carries the idea of being feared and honored, a weightiness to it. This deserves our honor. We see that mindset also in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, where Moses says in verse 11, Who is like you, O O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Well, the answer to that question is no one. No one is like God. No one does the deeds like God does. No one is as glorious as He is. No one deserves a reverent fear as God does. As the King of the universe, including all mankind, God is to be praised. His And his sovereignty, his exaltation, his complete rule over all flows out of his holiness. Now, I keep using that term holiness or the term holy, and it's probably a good idea that we define it. Let's understand what that means. Most of us, when we think of holiness, instantly go to the idea of moral purity, of being sinless. And while that is a secondary definition or an implication of holiness, the primary meaning behind the idea or the term of holy is to be set apart. To be set apart from something. To be separate from it. To be otherly. So when we say God is holy, we're saying God is set apart. He's unlike his creation. He is different from us. He is beyond us. In fact, when we think of God's holiness, we don't get far without bringing in the idea of transcendence. God's transcendence. We often focus on the imminence of God, which is his nearness to us. But God's transcendence is that he is above and beyond everything. He is supremely above and supremely greater than everything else. This would go with our understanding of holiness. Many have said that God's holiness is his chief attribute. And I would concur with that. I would agree. It is interesting when you study through the scriptures, you see God described as holy more than any other attribute. More than God being described as righteous or sovereign or loving or merciful or gracious. While those are in there a lot, God as holy is the most dominant attribute listed. So It is unlike the others. R.C. Sproul has written in his classic book, The Holiness of God, he's written regarding the term holy to describe God, saying the word is used as a synonym for his deity. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is, all that he is. It summarizes him. And so you think, what about the other attributes? Well, it characterizes all his other attributes. It is a holy justice that God has. It is a holy righteousness, a holy power, a holy love, a holy grace. Because God's grace and justice and mercy and love and all those things are unlike us. They are beyond our demonstrations of that. As you read through the Bible, you think about the holiness of God, you don't get far before you run into Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah gets an amazing view of the throne of God. And he not only gets to see this view, but he gets to hear what's being said. And as he views the throne of God, there are angelic beings called seraphim flying around God, the throne, proclaiming something about him. And so you're, you would think, okay, we have a picture here of sinless beings who get to see God far more and better than we do. Their declarations about, about what God is was, would be pretty reliable. We'll get to see at his very nature and being what God is like. And so what do they say in Isaiah 6.3? What, what does it proclaim about God? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy. Not righteous, righteous, righteous. Gracious, gracious, gracious. Loving, loving, loving. Those things are true. But the angels proclaim the thing that stands out above all, and that is He is holy, holy, holy. Now when the Bible was written, They didn't use highlighters or exclamation points to bold lettering to try to bring emphasis to something. When they wanted to draw emphasis to something, they repeated the word. We see that in the New Testament when Jesus is talking and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you pay attention, this is important what I'm about to tell you. Well, here we see "wholly" repeated, so it's bringing emphasis. But not only that, it's used three times. The idea here of such repetition is that he's not just really holy. He is the holiest of holy ones. He is the holiest above all. There's no one that even comes close to his line of holiness. And it is because he is set apart from creation that he is worthy of our worship. Because he is holy, he is worthy of our worship So as the creator with a character, a nature, in essence, infinitely different from ours, we are to exalt him. He, the Lord, is the object of our worship. He's the object of our worship. Too often we tend to evaluate whether worship was good or not based off of how we feel walking away from it. People judge a church by whether the music got them hyped up and feeling good, whether the sermon was short and funny or long and boring, and I'm a little scared to know which category I fall in there. But we judge it by how it makes us feel. Man is prone to want what makes makes me feel good, feel good about myself. There's a reason that health, wealth, and prosperity preaching is so popular. There's a reason that people like Joel Osteen and the message he throws out there is so popular. Because people want to feel good about themselves. But that's not biblical worship. You are not the center of biblical worship. Worship is not about us or how it makes us feel. Because if it was, if I'm the object of worship, then we've just committed idolatry. We've replaced God with ourselves. Which ought to make us evaluate real quick. Stop and think, when I come to worship, or even as I go about my life of worship, am I the focus of it? Am I committing idolatry? But biblical worship is about responding to who God is. And it's not just the music portion on a Sunday morning. Every element of our gathering is Worship. We ought to be, in fact, before we even come to gather together on a Sunday morning, we ought to be living lives of worship so that when we come together, we see a visible expression of the worship that's already been going on, and now it is just corporately displayed. As the holy God, he is sovereign in his universal rule, and we worship him because of it. But his holiness, his uniqueness, his separateness is not just displayed with him as sovereign king. His holiness is also demonstrated through his justice and his righteousness. And that brings us to the second reason we ought to worship our holy God. And that is because he is the just king. Verses 4 through 5 say, The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Our holy God is just and righteous. Now some of you, if you have an NASB translation, notice that there was a little difference there in that first line. The ESV says the king in his might The NASB says, the strength of the king. And while I think the NASB translation is preferable here, both communicate the same idea. The idea is that he is, this king, is mighty or powerful in his display of justice and righteousness. The power that God possesses characterizes his whole rule. He governs the universe with power. Now, what was most clearly seen as we look at the Old Testament History was most clearly seen in his relation with his people. When he established Israel, he set up or established and demonstrated his love for justice and order. He set up what was the right way. He creates equity, meaning he sets the level playing field of what is fair and right. And as the perfect and holy creator, he alone determines how we should live. What's the right way to live? God even uses his mighty strength for righteousness and the good ends he determines as best. God is righteous and just. Justice is that which holds man accountable to the right standard. It holds man accountable to a standard And if so if you're like me and you're doing your Bible study, you stop and think, okay, what is that standard you're talking about? What is the standard we're held accountable to? Well, it's clear from Scripture that it is God and His Word that are the standard. And mankind's designation of right and wrong does not change God's determination of what is really right and wrong. We see this in our culture, especially the last few weeks, all that's been going on, but not just with the abortion issue, but with the homosexuality issue and many other things. We see this unfolding before our eyes. Right, what is right is now defined as what makes me happy and feel good, makes me feel loved and affirmed by you. That's how our culture wants to define what is right. That's how fallen man wants to define what is right. And the the reality is, our understanding of what we think is right doesn't affect what God determines is right. We don't persuade God to change the lines of justice and righteousness. He has already established what it is, what is right. God alone is the standard for truth not my feelings, not popular opinion. And what the Holy One says is right is right. And what the Holy One says is wrong is wrong. And the one exalted above us and perfectly righteous determines how we ought to live. And he executes his justice in dealing with sin. And he executes that justice perfectly because it is a holy, perfect justice and so what does the psalmist say our response is to god being the just king well verse five he says exalt the lord our god worship at his footstool holy is he this is man's response to the display of god's holiness through justice now real quick i want you to look at your bibles and notice in verse five there's a little word that's been added He is the Lord, our God. Interesting, he slides that in, especially in the section talking about God's justice. He is our Lord God. He's the one who saves us, who cares for us, who is faithful to us, and the one who powerfully works in us. And we are to exalt the Lord our God. This is similar to what we saw in verse 3. This is praise God. We ought to exalt him, praise him, which means we lift him up. We raise him up as greater than ourselves. I'm lifting the Lord up, believing him to be as wondrous as he really is, and then proclaiming it with my mouth. I am to exalt him. But notice, the command here to exalt is not the first time we've seen this word exalt. If you paid attention, you saw back in verse 2, it said, He is exalted over all the peoples. What does this tell us? It tells us that our praising of God is a recognition and declaration of who He already is. We don't make God exalted. We don't make Him sovereign. We don't make Him just. He already is that. We can even say, this is what defines our worship. I recognize and I praise God for who He really is, and then I live my life in light of who He really is. And in fact, it causes me to want to strive to know Him better and better so that my praise would be better and better. So we exalt Him. But we don't just do that. He's added another command. We worship at His footstool. We worship at His footstool. At its most basic meaning, the Hebrew term worship means to bow down. We bow down before him, which gives us the idea of we humble ourselves before him. We humble ourselves before him. The Lord is the sovereign and holy king. We submit to him. He doesn't submit to us. On the the top of the ark, the cherubim, when they were stretched out facing each other, their faces were actually downward. And the idea was a reverence before God, a humility before God, recognizing he's the Holy One, I'm not. And so like the cherubim would have their faces downward as a sign of reverence, so our worship should contain that idea of humility and reverence before the Lord. And the outflow of that should be complete submission to him. So if we wanted to put a definition on worship, we could say that is the humble response to who God is, the humble response to who God is, that demonstrates itself in our adoration of the Lord and our obedience to him. Recognition for who he is that leads to a transformed life. And while my life is transformed, I'm praising him because he's the one doing it. The psalmist says to do this at his footstool. This is another reference for the Ark of the Covenant in the time of Israel. The idea, the picture in the mind was that God sat in heaven enthroned on his throne and his feet sat on the footstool of the Ark. So God reigned in heaven and God reigns on earth. The psalmist wants us to praise God. Praise Him where He is present. And He is ruling present from heaven and earth over all the creation. Well, the Lord's holiness demonstrates itself through His sovereign reign, through His perfect justice. And these are reasons to fuel our worship, to motivate our worship. But We see in this last section that His holy nature is also seen through the grace that He shows us. Verses 6 through 9, we see the, that he is the gracious king. The psalmist goes on, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. Oh Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoing. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Verses 6 through 8, within this idea of the gracious king, point to the relationship between between the king and his people. The grace of God is displayed in his involvement with us. God's grace flows, though, from his holiness as it is a kindness shown towards us that is unlike anything else we'll ever find. You will never find anything as good and amazing as the grace of God. Now, you would have thought if you would have just stopped at verse 5 that this holy sovereign king would want nothing to do with us. He is so lofty, and high and righteous and pure and who are we but verses 6 through 8 provide 6 through 9 provide this beautiful reminder that God loves his people cares for his people is near to his people his mercy and grace are unlike any other he knows us he hears us he answers our prayers And the example he gives are of Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, which are three of the big hitters in the Old Testament, especially the early Old Testament. Moses and Aaron, you might recognize them from the time of the exodus out of Egypt all the way up to the edge of the promised land. And he calls them priests, which is interesting because Moses was never specifically referenced as a priest So it gives us this more broad understanding of, he's referring to they were servants of God who interceded for others. Let me just read the life of Moses. There was a lot of patient intercession for other people. Samuel, who was a prophet, you might remember from the transition of the time of the judges to the time of the kings. And he too called upon the name of the Lord, interceded for other people. And the reference to these three men, these leading men within the history of Israel, was to narrow down an emphasis on God's ongoing close relationship with his people. The Holy King is a gracious king. He, and he expresses this undeserved compassion towards his people. A compassion unlike anything else. I mean we read through the Old Testament. This is why it's good for us to read our Old Testament because we come more familiar with who God is and how he has dealt with his people. And we see a lot of merciful dealings with his people. Even then the mercy of it refers to him giving them his testimonies. God gave him gave them his word so that they would know him and know how to live a way that is honoring to him, but we would see throughout history that though they had that, they often disobeyed and ended up in rebellion. And so God would bring judgment. He would bring discipline to them, and then they would repent and cry out. But there were consequences for sin. We see that reference here of God being an avenger of their wrongdoings. There were consequences for their sin. In fact, there was a consequence for Moses's sin when instead of Speaking to the rock to bring forth water, as God had told him to, he struck the rock with his staff. And the consequence of Moses' rebellious act was he was not able to enter the promised land. But that didn't mean God didn't forgive him. There's still forgiveness. Redemptive history testifies to this ongoing, amazing forgiveness God gives his people. We even, to this day, experience that forgiveness. And so what's our response to this holy and gracious king? Well, it's verse 9. It looks a little familiar. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Exalt him. Praise the one who shows us grace, who answers our prayers, who forgives our sins, who loves us enough to discipline us when we go wayward. Praise him. Now, it mentions here, instead of worship at his Footstool, it says worship at his holy mountain. This is just a reference to the temple mountain in Jerusalem. It was a set apart place where the ark rested. And the point here is to worship him where he is present. For a Jew growing up during this time, it would be go to the temple and worship him. But the temple's not there anymore. And Jesus has come already. He came the first time. And we read of his comments on where worship should take place. In John chapter 4, we read of Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman, which would have been taboo. Samaritan Jews did not, Samaritans and Jews did not get along, and yet Jesus begins this conversation with her, and she, in her discernment, realizes that he must be a prophet. And so she asks him that hotly debated issue of where should true worship take place? Should it be like the Samaritans say at Mount Gerizim, or should it be like the Jews say in Jerusalem? And Jesus, in his amazing way, responds to her beginning in verse 21. He says, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. Neither this mountain, neither Mount Gerizim, or Jerusalem. And then he goes on, verse 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's, it's no longer about a location. It is a lifestyle In spirit and truth, to praise the Holy One, the one we learn about in His Word, the one who saves us. And we praise Him based off the truth, not my feelings, off the truth, but my emotions, my feelings, my heart devotion is brought along because I know the truth. And I worship Him in spirit and truth. I no longer need to go to some temple. I don't need to go to the temple or its furniture to worship our Holy Lord. Christ came, lived a perfect life, and yet offered himself to the Father by dying on the cross for our sins. And being the great and perfect sacrifice, he appeased the justice of God. He satisfied it. He satisfied it. And as Christ now dwells in those who trust in him, We can worship him at all times, anywhere. But remember, we just read, he said that the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God has sought out and saved people so they would be a worshiper of him. You are saved to worship him. The nations must worship him. And in the words of John Piper, missions exist because worship does not. The last line, it says, for the Lord our God is holy. This ends the threefold emphasis that worship is driven by God's holiness. It is because God is holy that he hates sin. He, his own holiness binds his love to that which conforms to his nature, to his will, to his ways. And sin is the opposite of God's nature and God's ways sadly all of us all of mankind is infected with the disease of sin and it is necessary for a holy god to deal with that sin and while he is not fully punishing with his wrath those who are living now in rebellion there will come a day when he will unleash the fullness of his wrath and it will be a great and yet terrible day Jesus, in fact, made the standard even more clear that if you think you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, and if you desire that, well, then you got to be perfect. You have to be perfect. So if you're going to try to earn your way into heaven, you got to be perfect. And by the way, you already blew it. So sorry, you're out of luck. There is no other way. That means we have to have someone who is perfect to save us, to rescue us. The justice of the Holy King hangs over everyone and no one is stronger than the divine King to be able to repel his judgment. So the King himself must deal with it. The King himself has appeased his own justice through the gospel. God took care of it. Listen to Romans three twenty three through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, not by works, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. At the cross, God doesn't just set aside his justice as it's no big deal. The divine king is just and justice must be served. And so he appeased his justice on the cross for those who will trust in Christ. Trust in him today if you have not. It is better that you trust in Jesus where that justice was satisfied than you spend all eternity in the lake of fire, pain, an unpayable debt against God's justice. The faithfulness of the Holy King draws us to worship Him, and we are led to humble ourselves and give Him all the credit for anything good we have received. psalmist wants to remind us that this King is sovereign, just, and gracious, and He is so because He is holy. And though He should be distant from us, He draws near to us through the gospel. So our, our worship ought to be motivated by the Lord's holiness. Our worship is to be based off of who God is. We're not the focus of our worship. The, the psalm draws us to take our eyes off ourselves and off our hardships and look up at the majesty of our good and holy God. Look to him more. Praise him more. Focus on him more. Looking out at this world and its depravity and the, the cares and the burdens of our lives, they weigh us down, and we easily get wrapped up in those cares and fights of the world. But the remedy is to take our eyes off the world and look upon the Lord, to recall the joy that is our salvation in Jesus, to reflect on who He is, to ponder what He has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. The story is not over. God still has work to do. The Holy King Jesus will come, and he will set up his perfect rule here on this earth, and all will tremble when his judgment arrives. We will see the perfect expression of this psalm as Jesus sits down on his throne, and he will be unlike any king. He is perfectly holy now, and he will be perfectly holy when he reigns as king here. But don't wait for Christ to return to praise him. Praise him today. Worship him because he is the holy God who is sovereign, just, and gracious. The holiness of God, it demands, it demands our worship. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise because you are a holy God. There is none like you. There is none as powerful as you. There is none as wise as you. There is none who knows all that you know. We also know that there is no one as gracious or as loving as you are. And we... We thank you for the grace that you have shown us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Though we deserve to pay for our own sins in the lake of fire, you have sent your Son to take care of that for us. That our Holy Lord would go to such a length to reconcile us to you is amazing. May we ponder that daily. May we be more prone to to praise you and to look at how good you are and look at all that you've done and are doing and, and not forget to look at what you will do. And may those thoughts fill our mind more and more so that the trials and the hardships of our lives would be put in the right perspective. That we would remember no matter what we go through, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing is more powerful than you. Father, we look forward to the day that our Savior returns and reigns. Let it be soon. Please, even let it be today. But if it's not, we pray that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen.